Hey everybody, it's Chris Cannon from the nonprofit notes that Zuri Group is putting together through these podcasts. You might have noticed that we're doing a segment again on CRM implementation. We had mentioned we're going to do the four stages. Uh, last time we talked about selection and, and how to get the right set of tools in place, what, what major considerations you need. Today we're going to talk about now that you've contracted for what you needed to select, uh, how do you get ready? What's that launch look like? How do you position the organization for success? These are, as we like to say, this isn't a sprint. It's not even a marathon. It's a triathlon. There's lots of parts. It's really long. You get out of the water. You've still got to run 26 miles and ride your bike 100 and whatever, 10 miles, right? So it's not easy. And it's a very long period to work through lots of organizational complexity. And starting off on the right foot, therefore, matters a lot. Going down the right path initially means you don't have to backtrack, et cetera. So I have a number of my colleagues here from Zuri. Many of us have been doing this work for decades. Many of us have been helping hundreds of organizations in our careers make sure that the technology helps them actually raise more money and build better relationships. And so what I'd like to do is in this readiness and launch conversation, uh, first start with my colleague, Brandon Ferris, to ask him, once you've made that selection as an organization, what are the first couple of steps you need to make sure that, that launch is ready? What are the things that best position the organization uh, for those first few steps? So Brandon, why don't you jump in and, and share a few details? Thanks, Chris. This is Brandon Ferris. I'm Senior Director of CRM Services at Zuri Group, and I've been implementing CRM systems for more than 10 years between Zuri and also formerly um, uh, on behalf of one of the major software vendors. And there, there's a lot to this question, and I'll focus on a, a couple of things. And I think the first one is really tactical and practical, and it's about it's about staffing and readiness. CRM system implementations and all that go, goes along with it is such an enormous undertaking that there will be a core team for every project whose whose lives will really be taken over by this, and yet who will continue to have significant day to day responsibilities that are normal to their ongoing work. And, and that's, that's, that's quite a, a workload. It's not uncommon. I would say that core team members during an implementation, if they were a 1.0 FTE before, they're a 1.5 or a 1.75 FTE through the project. And that's, that's not sustainable. And so one of the, interestingly, one of the things we'll, we'll probably talk about in, in one of these segments is success metrics. And one of the overlooked success metrics, in my opinion, is staff retention. You don't want to burn people out. That's and a great point. The, it also, there's also, there are other staffing considerations. We, uh, my colleague, Chris Pipkins in our last podcast talked about staffing appropriately to leverage the new system. That's a, that's a, not an unrelated concept. New systems with new capabilities often mean you need more, more skill sets or more people to take advantage of them. And then the other one, again, throughout this, these, these conversations, you'll we'll be talking about what I have named Legacy System 2.0 or Legacy 2.0 for short. And that is the replication uh, in a new system, more or less of, of what you're doing in the old. And it's the polar opposite of what any organization sets out to do. You know, invest, a seven-figure investment is intended to bring an organization to new levels of productivity and fundraising, fundraising success and to take advantage of the powerful new capabilities of a system. And yet what happens in many, many cases is, and it creeps in over the life of a project, is the replication of old ways of doing things. And so it's critically important to know that, to think about that, to 
create a project charter that sets forth uh, clear and specific goals around not doing that and around whether it's about innovation or or uh, efficiencies, the kinds of outcome fundraising numbers, the kinds of outcomes that actual adoption of the new system can give you. And I think one of the most critical things you can do along those lines is to pre-identify the handful of things that you truly and for legitimate business reasons actually do need to replicate. I call them sacred cows. Knowing what those are will free people to then think openly about everything else. And that's a simple and practical thing, and it's incredibly powerful. And I, I could not rec- I could not recommend something more than that. Yeah, it's sort of the difference between you know going on a keto diet and never having a carb again versus saying I can have carbs, but I get to have these carbs, right? You you pre-identify the thing you'll allow yourself to indulge, and really sometimes it is an indulgence to not get to a point of um, changing your behavior because you're making this investment of time and energy and, and resource and then saying, well, you know, but we need to have our TTS report. Like, well, do you though? And, and just pushing that. I, one of, of the, the clients that Brandon and I and a number of us have had a chance to work with did a really superb job up front with a charter and a risk register and some other of these things. And maybe I'd love for uh, Ellen uh, Pappas to talk through a little bit of that upfront process when you're launching? Like, What are some of those artifacts and, and tactics that we take that then give us the, the guideposts and the bumpers throughout the rest of the project? Sure. So I'm Ellen Pappas. I'm also with the management consulting group here at Zuri and uh, have worked on um, implementation projects for 20 plus years um, across all shapes and sizes. And one of the things that's consistent, whether the project is little, whether the project is large, whether it's going to be a nine month implementation or a two year implementation. And if you have 700 staff going live on a new system or your merry band of 15 fundraisers, regardless, at the beginning, it's really important to establish a project charter and The project charter has a few things that are consistently established, like the governance for your uh, implementation project. So who's going to make decisions and how are we making decisions Um, and how do we escalate decisions if we're running into some puzzles or some roadblocks or we need somebody to arbitrate um, to figure out we've got some design things that people want done a little bit differently or do we want to invest in a customization to do this one thing that some people are insisting are important. What is the governance structure? Establishing that ahead of time, really important. And as part of that charter, one of the other key exercises is creating with your project leadership team um, and your core team, a risk register. So the risk register is where you are sitting down as a team and thoughtfully documenting, what are the possible things that could come up that could impact this project? You list them out, and as a group, you kick around amongst yourselves and discuss um, how likely is this to happen, and then what would be the impact if this does happen, and then for the things that are high likelihood and high impact, you focus on those first, and you can have a few different strategies around each risk. You can decide that you're going to try in advance to mitigate the risk. You can decide you can't mitigate it, but you're just going to try to transfer the risk. So an example would be, um, we think we have a risk around burning out our staff 
And what we're going to do is hire some third party consultants. And if you're listening, by the way, you, you do have a risk of burning out your staff. Yes. Um, and you may decide we're going to we're going to bring some consultants on and we're going to transfer that risk to them. They can get burned out. So so um, there's there's transference and uh, you can hire other people or figure out other departments might maybe take on some risk around an area. Um, and then there's actual acceptance where you can say, you know what, we're not going to do anything about we can't mitigate it. Uh, we can't transfer. It. We have to accept that this is just a risk. But then we have a plan for if this risk item comes to pass, here's what we're going to do. And so if you decide amongst yourself and go through that thought exercise, then if that risk does come to pass, then you've got your action plan already. You just turn, turn right to this register and you execute instead of deer in the headlights. Oh, no. Wow. What do we do? Um, so the risk register should be a living document throughout your engagement um, and your implementation pull it out every uh, couple of months, depending on the duration of your engagement, once a month, every two months or so, pull it out and refresh it. Any new risks come up? What are we looking at here? What's relevant today? So it really should be an important and living part of how you're running your engagement, but you establish it up front, And it's so, so, so important. Yeah, there's a big part of this where um, I would say that, you know, we're, we're talking about balancing the being able to talk the talk is one thing, but walking the walk is another. I think Chris Pipkins has talked about this, that you need to live the charter, right? So you might have the most beautifully eloquently written document to get everybody riled up. And if three weeks later, it's two people in a room doing all the work, you need to revisit the charter and do what Ellen just mentioned. How about some other folks uh, on, on the call here today? We have a, a, a bunch of talented Zuri team members who've done this before. Um, Chris Pipkins, did you want to weigh in on what kinds of considerations for that readiness and, and maybe, you know, either governance components or other things are really essential to getting lined up and, and ready to, to succeed in a project that's as big as a CRM replacement? Yeah, in the last podcast, we talked about um, who is the who, and to, to Ellen's point, the risk register, how do those escalations get resolved? From a total, you know, broad context perspective, you know, there's this inherent necessary tension between the client and the product delivery or the vendor. One wants a minimally viable product and one wants a maximally viable product. And I, I, I couldn't agree more. And every time I hear MVP, I think, let's think maximum. And then I hear minimal <laughs> and it drives me crazy. Right. Right, like the client needs someone to maximize the outcomes um, because of you know what life is after. And ultimately, between maximum desire and minimum viability, that funnel is shaped by time, by configurations, by that ecosystem. Those all take um, pieces. And we, you know, we know the time budget scope, but the scope starts out big. And can we, are we prepared up front to um, complete that at the end? Yeah, that, in that that idea of, of making the M the maximum wherever possible or listening for what are our real pain points? Where do we really have to solve something? And, you know, minimum is not 
allowable, and sometimes it is. I wonder if um, other team members would like to jump in on this idea of um, in the readiness and launch, there, the balance of how do you manage expectations around all of these, you know, what the M means in MVP, what that means. So I know Kate, Kate Nemini has a ton of experience with change management and expectation setting. How would you in a big CRM implementation, how would you guide folks who are listening to, to get ready for it and to do it well to prepare? Hi everybody, Kate Nimini here. I am also on the management consulting team. You may have heard me talk about change management on a different podcast episode. So um, for a lot of you, this may be revisiting some of the concepts that I had already talked about, but um, setting expectations goes hand in hand with identifying your vision, identifying your charter and, and governance structure, setting up your project teams. Now what? How do we set those expectations for all, not only the users, but also the folks who are deeply involved in the project? And that all sort of boils into what we consider to be change management and transition management. So the idea of change management, Brandon had suggested um, in our last episode that change management begins at the beginning. And we can actually start this process right when you're working on your selection or, or just as you are um, starting to consider a system change. Um, communication is key. We use what we call a stakeholder analysis to identify who each of these people are that we're trying to speak to and that we're trying to communicate with and ready. And we develop different methodologies of communicating with them. So different frequencies, different methods, different voices or messages are going to be important depending on the person that you're talking to. When you're aligning everybody in the organization for buy-in ahead of um, actually beginning the implementation or as you're setting up your governance and you're establishing what their roles are, it's very important to give them a sense of what the expectations are for them. So you can set all of that up in your charter and governance documentation and then bring it to those folks and explain to them how they are critical to the success of this project. It then becomes a factor for success metrics. It becomes measurement. It's also feeding the larger communication of everybody talking to one another and the cascade of communications that comes from deep within the project and, and moves out toward the user population who's maybe not as involved, but does still need to understand. We use tools like project website, email templates, branding to sort of um, consolidate all of the communication efforts to, to make a space for the project and for the users and stakeholders who are involved in the project that may be separate from their day-to-day. -day. Separating that space is gonna be really important in transition management, where we sometimes have to sort of recognize what we're doing today is not what we're going to be doing tomorrow. And that recognition begins the transition. And without it feeling pejorative, right? Like most of our colleagues in, in our client spaces I've worked their tails off for years to make things work and often with, you know, more duct tape than they like. So I wonder if Ken Swift wants to jump in here about expectation management at launch, because from a very technical standpoint, there, you know, you can't, you, you can make certain things happen and some things just are less likely um, because of maybe what you, you have now and purchased, maybe because of the phasing of your product, your project, et cetera. But Ken, how would you weigh in on this kind of change in expectation management from your perspective? 
Sure, thanks, Chris. Um, hi, everyone. This is Ken Swiftman, president of our CRM and technical services group here at Zuri. Um, we oftentimes use use the analogy of a, a, of a kind of an Ironman triathlon to kind of describe the the uh, kind of the engagement or implementation of a new product. Um, oftentimes for organizations, as they go through the selection phase of the project, it's it can be short, it can be long. Some clients take 18 months, two years, three years to make a selection. Other organizations do it much more quickly. And we kind of look at that as being kind of the 2.4 mile uh, swim portion of a, of a triathlon. Then you get into the actual implementation where kind of the, uh, the rubber meets the road. Um, literally with the kind of the bike portion of, of, of your triathlon, because you are implementing the solution, you're converting your data, um, and you're getting to a point where you are live. And that, that could be um, anywhere from nine, nine, to nine months to two years, um, but that's not the end of the race. You still have a, a 26.2 mile run you have to do once you get live. And that's kind of that stabilization period. It's also where things that are nice to haves, but not must haves might, um, carry over into uh, months and years ahead. And that's where you kind of get into a phased approach. But you certainly need to be very careful about kind of pushing everything into a phase two, because what you don't want to do is um, have your end users perceive that you're going backwards in terms of features and functions when you go live. So most organizations end up being on a on a better platform with uh, better tooling, with a better user experience, but from a feature and function standpoint, they might have near parity with what they had um, in their legacy system, but it's really the uh, the vision is, is what, um, and the opportunities to grow from there is what um, they're looking for in a new implementation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, um, the timing of that, there's always, phase two is either a phase of work you didn't get to or it's just the maintenance and ongoing innovation in your new platform there there is always some extra work but you know there's probably some nice rule of thumb here that if you're thinking of um having a phase two or having a, a three-month longer phase one have a three-month longer phase one and know that at your launch and expect you know manage those expectations up front because it'll feel better to not have a phase two in general for most users right imagine We've used the house metaphor uh, a bit in some of these recent podcasts. And, you know, when you move into the house, you'd like for your carpet to be there in every room. And sometimes it can't be, but if you can make it so, and it takes a couple extra weeks or months, then that expectation management can be really critical. What are the other, we have a couple of other colleagues here um, that I, I wonder if they might want to weigh in on the other types of expectation management at launch considerations or a whole nother topic, um, which we could we could talk about all day, is what should that launch look like? Um, how can you best leverage getting everybody together to talk about, you know, hey, we finally contracted. We're excited about this. Here's what it looks like going forward. I wonder, Osama, did you want to weigh in on either of those topics? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Chris. I'm Osama Amin, uh, part of the, uh, the management consulting group at uh, Zuri Group. Uh, one of the things that's been sort of said, and I just want to kind of re-emphasize re and the importance of it, is senior management sponsorship. Uh, unless you really have the senior management sponsorship uh, and the senior management leadership is not openly and willingly committing to change management and adoption, it makes it very difficult uh, because the team, the core team, the, the project team others are really looking in my experience to that senior management, that sponsors, the sponsor committee to really give credence to the importance of of adoption of change management. So for me, that level as you're working through the project charter and the governance, 
um, is to have that escalation point, not just an escalation point, but somebody who can, a, a group that can, that can commit to, this is what the institution that from leadership is committed to, to, to change and, um, and adopting a new system. So for me, that, that's, a, that's a critical part of, of, of launching and, and, and buying in. It's a great way to, to put it. I, I like it to, you need um, the capacity to do the work, but you also need the authority along this process in that charter that we've talked about helps, right? The risk register and the stakeholder, all those things help. And ultimately, I think the single most impactful thing that I've ever seen in an implementation of, of a CRM, and it's, it remains to, for me to be the, the single best implementation of a CRM I've seen, hands down, um, was the vice president of this organization attending the kickoff, cell phone put away, front row, making sure that they paid attention and participated. That same vice president showed up at the first training, cell phone put away, paying attention, didn't get up to take calls, et cetera, like gave it the attention it needed. And that set the tone that, you know, boy, if you think you need to leave to go take a call, it better be from a millionaire donor because, you know, this person is in the room with you showing how important as a leader it is to them, right? So are there other tactics anybody would like to share that they've seen around getting the launch right and getting, you know, buy-in and those things in place? This is Ellen. And I do, there was one technique that I saw once that I thought was really nice. Um, there was a, when we're talking about leadership sponsorship. So the, the senior vice president, the top fundraiser in this organization um, was very interested in making sure that everybody was engaged and interested in this new implementation. But realistically, she was not, of course, in the day-to-day -day of what was going on in the project. And um, the, the project leadership for the implementation provided her with once a week, a couple of snippets, almost like little note card style snippets of what are the things that you might hear bubbling up in conversation around the office about this project so that she could at least have a little bit of the lingo of a little bit of what was happening and, and, and listen or uh, just join in a conversation and really let people know she was paying attention to it without, of course, she wasn't in the day-to-day -day weeds and we didn't expect her to be, but she really used these, I thought, nicely. And I, I saw her very elegantly engage somebody with like, oh, I understand that the design session just finished about this topic area. And what did you think of what we came up with for the foundation things? You know, she wasn't in it, but she acted like she was really paying attention to a lot of it. And then that person lit up and was like, oh, oh yeah, around the foundation contacts, we're going to be doing this thing. And so it let people know she was really trying to pay attention to it. Um, and so it was just, I thought a really nice technique. These were like little snippets of what's happening. Yeah. So she could chat about it. I've seen a lot of, you know, sometimes I see them as sort of wow moments, you know, put it on a post-it note and, and it gets it, you know, recycled around. I was really impressed by the following thing, doing that in the, the kickoff and showing people some highlights to then ask them, you know, what were you most excited about? Those are ways to, to just gain some engagement in your launch and kind of readiness efforts. I wonder, Kate Nimity, if you want to have the last word on the readiness and launch of a CRM implementation. The last word, what's in it for me? I think that the, the phrase, the, okay, last I'll, phrase, I'll allow it. Yeah, I'll allow it. 
I think that even when talking to leadership and, and especially when talking to leadership, um, it's important to contextualize what this new system will bring based on what is going to be a wow moment for that particular person. And if you can give each person the with them, the what's in it for me, then each person is going to be excited in their own way. And that excitement will transfer. If you, you can't expect um, the leadership of the organization to necessarily be as excited about data entry as the data entry specialist. However, you can, you can expect them and you can help them get excited about this system and about kicking off the system. Um, there's a lot of fun that can happen with a kickoff also and engaging someone who's a, a high up leader in that fun really humanizes them and makes them a part of the project um, in a way that maybe they, they aren't engaged in the project regularly. They aren't that person, that, that leader who's sitting in the front row with, with their cell phone off. Um, it, if you don't have that at your organization, you can still in, engage the leadership in a way that keeps them part of this process and part of the kickoff. And then of course, throughout the project, throughout the implementation, you are, you're engaging them again as a piece of this larger puzzle and involving them with, with the changes that will affect the what's in it for me for, for them. A lot of times it's reporting or board involvement. And so um, ways that you can highlight the milestones that, that will get them to the next level of of reporting or the next level of board engagement are really going to make a difference for folks at that higher level and that excitement will trickle down. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for that and, and to help give some final thinking on this podcast about how to get ready and how to launch and, and how to make the what's in it for me clear. Uh, as our friend Chris Pipkin says, the what's in it for me is also for the podcast listener here today. So. We will wrap up to be timely on this particular podcast. Tune in next time when we talk about the functional and technical obstacles and typical considerations that every organization needs to be prepared for so that you have the best chance possible to go from a smooth kickoff to a smooth implementation itself, which is pretty tricky to do considering their complexity. So thanks again for listening, and we'll look forward to talking to you soon.